All right, folks, welcome. Good to have you back in the here. So, as I said earlier, this is the 15th annual Annapolis Summit. As we like to kind of uh, joke in-house, the only consistent part of the 15 years has been the two mics. And here they are. So, uh, on this 15th annual Annapolis Summit, we are joined by uh, Senate President Mike Miller and House Speaker Michael Bush. Again, gentlemen, thank you both so much again for doing this this year. Sure. Um, and let me once again thank our sponsors, uh, of course, our partner, The Daily Record, and Suzanne Fisher-Hutner, who's just been an incredible partner to work with on this, the Maryland State Bar Association, our lead partner, Alexander and Cleaver, Chimes, the Maryland State Education Association, which has been with us for the entire 15 years, and VPC Inc. that's doing all the work here to tape and show this to the world. So, uh, and this will be on podcast later today, this morning, uh, on uh, several Facebook pages, on iTunes, on our page, on the Maryland Daily Records page, and more. So uh, whatever you say will be heard by somebody. Just remember. Good to see you, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. So let me begin with something that is maybe not a piece of legislation, but is just in the air. Um, and, <laughs> and it's in the air in a very prominent way. I, I think that. Um, piece written in the post kind of really hit it hardest uh, in talking about the fallout from Me Too across the country and in the state of Maryland and in our state legislature and in these halls. Uh, the question of the role of women in sexual harassment in, in, uh, in, in Annapolis. And let me just put, put it this way and very frankly put it this way. So um, I've been in Annapolis for decades now, right. one thing or another. Uh, and I think the, you'd have to be, as my mother would say, blind, deaf, and daft, as she was saying her English accent, uh, not to be aware that the way women are treated in, in Annapolis, in the halls. Um, and that it's interesting that many women legislators and lobbyists do not want to come forth with their names because they're nervous about the way this place is structured it is very male-dominated, uh, and women are very uncomfortable. And um, and we're reaching a new way of doing things. So I know you all have proposed doing a commission, but how do we begin to really change that kind of behavior and not allow it? I, you know, I. One last thing I'll say about that first is that I, I could, I've heard in the last year stories from at least eight different women. Uh, none of whom wanted to go on the record, none of whom wanted to say who the, they told me who the delegates were and the senators were, but didn't want to say anything in public, and were kind of devastated by their treatment. So where do, we, where, where do you, you two men who run this institution right. begin with this to change, to change the nature of this behavior so we can lead the nation in turning that around? Well, I'll start out a little bit here. I mean, first of all, we take the issue very seriously. Uh, in both chambers, and we have gone through a training program with every legislator so that they understand exactly you know, their role and the fact that some of them and some of the men don't even realize that uh, their actions are being seen as uh, uh, harassment. But we make sure that they know that and they go through the training. We also, with the women legislators, uh, want them to feel comfortable uh, being able to go through the structure and the process uh, having some anonymity, uh, so if they do bring a issue forward that uh, we deal with uh, through either the Human Resources Department uh, or through uh, uh, the Ethics Committee. And uh, we're trying very hard, uh, quite candidly, uh, to make sure this is the safest workplace and most compatible workplace and comfortable workplace uh, anyone can work in. And it's not just legislators, it's staff. I mean, it's staff, and, and uh, you got to make them feel comfortable. You have lobbyists uh, here as well, uh, many female lobbyists that, you know, you want to make them feel as comfortable as possible. And, uh, you, you know, you need everybody to be aware, number one. And I, I think the first thing is the training that uh, we go through. Uh, the first caucus we'll have in the House will be to reaffirm that everybody understands the serious nature of this issue. And, uh, you know, uh, and I don't think they're immune to what's going on around the country in all, all areas of uh, 
the business community. So it is a serious issue. It is something that uh, we are very cognizant of and are working hard uh, to make sure that uh, uh, we have uh, a workplace that everybody feels safe and comfortable in. I think that Annapolis is no different than the general public, uh, than corporations, than uh, other institutions. But because it has brought, been brought to our attention over and over again, uh, we work hard at dealing with it. Uh, one of the first chairmen I made is, uh, when I became president of the Senate, was Senator Kathy Riley. I had chairman of budget and tax, Senator Barbara Hoffman. Uh, my majority leader, Senator Catherine Pugh, is now the mayor of Baltimore City. We incorporate women into our leadership. Uh, and very much value their ideas and participation. But this is a societal problem, and we are dealing with it, uh, I think, strong, more strongly than any other legislature in the nation. Uh, just uh, uh, last week, we had uh, every senator but one have their staff go through uh, training on this issue. Uh, the senators themselves uh, have to go through the training. Uh, we're going to do, start to do it again next year for the new senators. And, um, and not just their staffs, but all the department people uh, have the training. Um, the speaker and I are setting up a, a commission. We, we already, uh, on our own, adopted regulations that include uh, uh, that the people can go to the ethics committee and take this directly to the ethics committee. One of the impetus is uh, I have for this commission is that I, my chief of staff was a uh, senator, uh, I mean, uh, she should be a senator. She's smarter than I am. Vicki Gruber, my senator, right. Vicki Gruber. Um, she was my chief of staff, and people could go. You both her. have powerful women running here. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, uh, but but she's gone now. She's head of the legislative services, fiscal services. And um, so we're going to create a commission, um, a very powerful commission, to look into this. And... Uh, uh, come back with additional recommendations. And I guess to, to, before we move on to the next subject, which would be Trump and taxes and health care, um, I mean, I think it behooves us as men also to not just let it happen. You know, when we see it at cocktail receptions and see any overhear men say certain things or inappropriate kind of behavior by people of our gender, that it's up to us to say something. Even whether you call them up on the carpet or not, Officially, but just not to let it happen. I mean, this, I mean, this, I mean, we take this very seriously. I have six sisters. I have four daughters. I have uh, ten female granddaughters, and we take this very seriously. I mean, very seriously. And uh, it's brought to the, been brought to the forefront by uh, uh, a, a horrible person who happens to be the president of the United States, and now it's in uh, everybody's agenda, and uh, and, and it, it's right that it is. So unless you want to say something else, Mike, we'll move ahead. So, yeah. so let's talk about where we are now with, with the agenda that's come out of Washington, D.C., and how right. that affects the state of Maryland. Both, let's start with taxes, okay. which is going to be a huge issue. Um, the governor is obviously reticent to uh, want to put new taxes on Marylanders. And right. And that I think he stated here in the last part of our program, a half a million to a billion dollars worth of taxes in the state of Maryland will come in because of um, the, retro, the, the, the tax plan to put them by the, by, the, by the president. So how do we respond to that? What, how does Maryland respond to A, the influx of money, but B, the unfairness of that tax structure, and what do we do about that? Where do, where do you two begin in well, your houses? Well, you know, I'll start there. First of all, I don't think anyone knows exactly what's in the tax bill. I mean, you talk to accountants, they don't know exactly how. Dr. Congress, they don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, so it's 560-some pages, and uh, I'm sure not every congressman and U.S. senator that voted for it even knows all the the issues in that bill. But uh, one thing we do know that uh, Maryland will probably be adversely affected more so than uh, most states. Uh, There's a reason why Republican congressmen in New York, Massachusetts, California and New Jersey all voted against the bill. That's because they have a uh, property taxes and local and state income taxes. Uh, we're a very progressive state. We're actually adversely affected uh, the most by uh, the tax bill. Individual taxpayers be adversely affected by it. We don't know exactly how much money that's going to come back to the state, and we don't know how much uh, the tax bill is going to affect uh, our programs now. 
I mean, obviously, it's going to create uh, instability in the marketplace for health insurance. Uh, you know, they've systematically torn down uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act. You know, at one point, uh, 96% uh, of all Marylanders had health insurance here. And, uh, you know, now with the rising premiums that are going to be caused by what's taking place in Washington, D.C., more and more people are going to, going to be looking for health insurance or affordable health care insurance. It's going to have an adverse effect on your hospitals, your physicians, because of more uncompensated care out there. Right now, uh, because of the lack of action on uh, the uh, children's health insurance for 142,000 children uh, will be without health insurance. In Maryland. And uh, I don't think any of us uh, want to go home here with 142,000 kids losing their health insurance. <coughs> and uh, I really feel strongly about that. And I think the vast majority of legislators on both sides uh, feel that way as well. So do we need aid to do things like some people, California did in terms of making local taxes, chattel reductions? Do you need to have a session kind of, you quoted as saying we might have to have a session in the summer to address taxation? Right. I mean, where do you think this goes? Well, it, it's very difficult. We have a, a populist governor who is a, uh, a Republican in a blue state who wants to get reelected uh, and who will say most anything uh, uh, to curry favor with the voters, including uh, he doesn't know how much money he's going to get back, whether it's going to be 100 million or 200 million or, or a billion. He's going <laughs> to give it all back to the taxpayers. But what he doesn't say, he's got a $250 million deficit right now uh, in Maryland. And it's going to grow to be a $600 million deficit next year. Um, and that has to be addressed. Uh, we need to keep our fiscal house. We have the AAA bond rating. We need to, we need to keep it in order. There's going to be cuts, cuts and more cuts. Um, but what we have to do right now, we are a 90-day, we have a 90-day session. Uh, this was foisted on us a couple weeks ago. Uh, the speaker and I are going to put the best minds together, uh, including accountants, CPAs, et cetera, um, to find a, a Maryland solution. Uh, Maryland, is, uh, as the speaker indicated, is hit hardest of all the 50 states on this issue. Uh, one and a half million returns go from Maryland to the federal government, and they take $16.5 billion deductions, which are now going to be wiped out. Uh, we've got to find a way to make Marylanders whole. Uh, we're a wealthy state. Uh, people, our people want amenities. And because of that, we send money, we send our state tax revenues back to the counties so that they can hold their property taxes down. No other state does that. Um, all that has to be taken into consideration and come up with a Maryland solution so our Maryland taxpayers are protected. This is an economic war. It's a war against the Old South, uh, the Midwest, and the Northern Mid Midwest against the blue states. It's a war against Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Maryland, Washington, uh, Oregon, California, et cetera. These are all blue states. And um, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's democracy in its worst possible way. So I'm going to come back to that. But what I want to do here is go back and forth between the audience and my questions. There are a lot of people standing up. I'm going to give people a chance to get in here and ask their questions as well, as we always do. Uh, we begin with uh, Brian Sears from The Daily Record, our print partner. Good morning, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President. Right. Uh, given the, uh, the fiscal challenges that you've just outlined um, and some of the other challenges that the state's going to have to look at in the next 90 days, is Maryland ready to have a conversation now about uh, expansion of gaming into sports betting and the uh, legalization of recreational marijuana uh, taxed and regulated? That's a big question, Brian. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, thought look, I'd bring, I thought I'd bring I, I my A game for the those, first day. <laughs> uh, uh, questions are, you know, always come up, but we don't know exactly what's going to take place with the New Jersey case on, on sports gambling uh, that uh, would expand to other states uh, like Maryland if we decided to take it up. I mean, and what Brian's talking about is, uh, you know, the casinos are now in Maryland and other areas. Uh, they don't have the right to book sporting uh, games like football, basketball, horse racing, things of that nature, but, uh, and then tax it. And we don't know exactly what the outcome of that case is, uh, but I'm sure there'll be something that'll be discussed during the session and there might not be any resolution or issue there. 
I think we still, with the marijuana issue, I still we're, we're trying to get up medical marijuana, uh, get that running before we have a, a real serious discussion on uh, recreational marijuana. As you know, medical marijuana can, cannot be taxed. It's a form of medicine. And uh, we hope to get that out to the people that need it uh, through the prescription of uh, doctors uh, throughout the state of Maryland. But, uh, you know, I think uh, we're looking to see with this uh, tax bill exactly how it affects Maryland, what our different options are. Uh, so when we get to the end of session, and it's a 90-day session, obviously, of what the positive is of for Maryland that we can do and what, what's negatively impacted. Uh, so we already know that uh, we don't have uh, money from the federal government for our children's health insurance program, and we already know with the tax bill that insurance premiums for health care are going to go sky high. Uh, yeah, other states are preparing for the uh, uh, sports betting. Uh, we'll have a blue paper designed for us by our fiscal services department in terms of um, how Maryland should react if the Supreme Court all of a sudden says it should be regulated by the states, whether it's done through the casinos we have or um, separate operations. Uh, Colorado is getting wealthy off of marijuana taxation. Um, you know, as the speaker indicated, we're still with medical marijuana. Once we get that up, then we'll see where we go. So with medical marijuana, the controversy that exists here right now, of course, is um, that the African-American community and business community has felt completely shut out of uh, right. any of the part of this process. How has that changed in this session? Well, well here, here's the thing. You know, you say they're shut out. The reason that they're shut out, or the reason they weren't included originally, is that um, our attorney general opined that there had that no, there had been no discrimination. This was all a new, new, new market, and they, can, they cannot indicate that there had been any discrimination in that market because it was all new. And the, the people, they were, were, were uh, probably almost every single applicant had significant minority participation within them, but there was not a one owner uh, who owned 90% of the stock that was uh, uh, an African-American. So what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, one of the first bills we're going to hear this session is a bill adding five new licenses and, um, for minority participation. But we remedied the situation as quickly as it was brought to us, but we, it, it couldn't be dealt with legislatively because historically there had been no discrimination and we were advised of that. The, uh, you know, we asked the governor and, and he agreed. Uh, they did the disparity study. So you could weight the application, particularly from African-Americans, uh, to make sure that they had a, a fair shot in the marketplace. I mean, and so we're waiting for that disparity study to come back uh, one of the priorities for both the Senate and the House this year is to uh, pass a, a medical marijuana bill, and uh, I know it's a priority of the African American Caucus. And uh, you know we plan on moving forward that year. I think it's uh, House Bill Two and Senate Bill Two uh, going forward. We have our first hearing on uh, Monday, Martin Luther King's birthday, and uh, you know we hope that the disparity study is backed by the end of January so we can move quickly on this issue. Let's go back to the audience. Good morning, Cheryl Bowes, teacher of Baltimore County and with Maryland State Education Association. I wanna start by saying thank you on behalf of educators, students, and our schools for always having our backs to guard us against uh, funding cuts and the hostile policies of Governor Hogan. So on behalf of all of our educators and students, thank you. As most of the leaders and stakeholders in the state are talking about the policy, funding, and accountability necessary for the future of our schools, we want to make sure that that includes a commitment, focus, and expansion of career technology education. Our students can create more pathways to career readiness and economic independence, but we're going to need your help. Help to allow more students to access these programs. How can we make progress on this while the Kerwin Commission continues and completes its work this year? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. In fact, uh, if you poll the public, uh, you know, four years ago or eight years ago, uh, the public was the focus on pre-K. We need pre-K in education. And I guess because the economy and because the world situation, now public opinion polls are saying uh, you need to focus on vocational education so that students who are not going to go to college are, are job ready to go in the uh, marketplace. And we are going to work with that. And also what we're going to do is we're going to anticipate the need for funding for the Kerwin Commission recommendations, and both the speaker and I are going to sponsor a bill 
perhaps a constitutional amendment this year. They'll go on the ballot, which will require, just mandate, that uh, casino revenues go to education. They were told it was what was going to happen. Just like when we passed the gas tax, we put a lockbox saying that transportation trust money have to go into transportation. We're going to do the same thing with um, casino money so that make sure, not just for education, but enhanced education. That's a big part of this. Let me just, uh, speak, Mr. Speaker, maybe going to speak to this as uh, what the President just said. So if there's a lockbox, that money goes to education, can't be touched for the coming out of the gambling industry. That Sometimes that's used as an excuse not to fully fund education. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because we end up, we end up uh, kind of diminishing the money that comes out of the general fund because money is coming to right from gambling. So how did because right because if all the studies coming out, the governor and I disagreed about this, but um, and maybe you'll disagree as well. But all the studies have shown that the money that we never fully funded Thornton, that the money coming for education is really lacking. Where does that money come from? I mean, is, and how do you find this one one point five billion dollars, some of which comes from the state and localities, to fully fund education in the state of Maryland? Um, instead of slipping backwards. I mean, so how do you ensure that? Look, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you go back with education, I mean, before Thornton, we, we put about $2 billion a year in public education. Right now we're putting about $6.5 billion in the publication. And part of that money, obviously, is from what comes from gaming. Uh, you know, people are talking about uh, making sure that we fund public education through the uh, general fund, and then adding on top the gaming money. So in other words, the gaming money would go to directly education. It wouldn't be part of the uh, foundation uh, with general fund money. I mean, general fund money right now is the vast majority of the money that comes in for education. About $500 uh, million comes in from uh, uh, gaming. So I think uh, that's one of the things we'll take a look at, but you have to replace that money in the general fund budget uh, because you're adding $500 million there. But I think the important thing for us to look at this year in the Kerwin Commission is that when they looked at other states, uh, the money is not following uh, the child as well as it is in, say, Massachusetts. And poorer kids are getting shortchanged more so under our formula than what you see in some of the other states that are progressing in education, as I said earlier, Massachusetts. So we're going to take a look at that and see if we can do a better job with the way we do uh, the distribution of the money, if you will, uh, to, to uh, some of the schools in the poor jurisdictions. You know, there's Utopia, and then there's the Maryland Way. And the Maryland Way is one of the best ways in the nation, honestly and truly. Uh, in Pennsylvania, they have a problem because the poor jurisdictions, uh, they get left out to depend on what property tax in the first of various counties. Uh, the Maryland formula makes certain that Crisfield's taken care of, Somerset County's taken care of, Allegheny County, uh, counties that aren't as uh, uh, doing as economically viable as others. Um, you know, I, uh, the, the new commissioner of schools in Montgomery County, a guy named Jack Smith, who's head of all, superintendent of schools in Montgomery County, was in Calvert County with me uh, before he got there. And he was newly transferred from Oregon. And he said, I've never seen so much money in education. I couldn't believe it uh, at that point in time. Uh, we provide a lot of money for education. It's, it's half of our budget. Uh, I think more so than any other state union. But guess what? Under this governor, and I'm not blaming him solely, we've gone from number one five years in a row in education <coughs> in the United States, and now we're fifth uh, because of our ed ed lack of attainment uh, from, from K through, through 12, being ready to go to college. And um, that needs to be addressed. And um, we, we need to find a new funding source. And I could say one, one of the things we're going to start with is Kerwin. So, well, I'm going to come back to funding sources in a minute and taxes, but let me go to the audience, as I promised. Next. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Mark. Uh, good morning, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President. My name is Jen Brock Cancellieri. I work with 1199 SCIU, United Healthcare Workers. We're Maryland's largest healthcare union, and we're part of a large coalition supporting um, Fight for 15 here in Maryland to raise our minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2023. We've got a huge coalition of labor groups, faith, community, and advocacy groups. And it's a very popular issue in Maryland as folks are struggling to make ends meet. My question for you this morning is that um, nothing, frankly, really happens in Annapolis without your leadership. You two um, were very helpful in leading, raising the wage um, 
previously, and we would like to ask this morning what you'll be doing this legislative session to help Marylanders, uh, raise Marylanders out of poverty this session. Well, the, 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 probably the second day of the session, uh, or third, um, we're gonna have a battle trying to get um, um, sick leave bill passed. It, uh, Which bill? Sick leave, mandatory sick, sick, sick leave. leave. Sick leave, right. You know, right, it, right. Um, it died a couple years in a row, and uh, we were able to get it through with a bare majority in the Senate, 29 votes, uh, which was necessary to override the governor's veto. Uh, he's been working hard to try to pick them off, uh, pick some of them off. Uh, I hope he's not successful. Um, so we're going to see if we can start right there and doing something at seven other states, including uh, uh, New York, uh, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, uh, Washington, Oregon, California, and even Arizona have done by ballot. Uh, we're going to try to make that happen. Start with that, uh, which is send a strong message to the working men and working women that, uh, especially people that work like for Walmart, they they are part-time employees. You know, they just don't have the benefits. They need they get sick. They need they need this sick leave, and um, so we're going to get that done. And then we'll look at uh, wages. Uh, that's being done in Montgomery County and Baltimore City, but there are really two Marylands. And so, for example, what works in Montgomery County does not necessarily work on the Eastern Shore of Maryland or Western Maryland. So. We're definitely going to be looking at looking at it very closely, and perhaps there can be a phase in like we did previously with the with the minimum wage. Mr. Speaker, talking about earned sick leave here, uh, that bill got 88 votes in the House last year, and uh, the members are enthusiastically uh, ready to overturn the governor's veto. And basically, what the bill does is it says if you have 15 employers or less, you have to give them. Um, uh, five days a year. Fifteen or more. Fifteen or more. Huh? Fifteen, 15 or, more. or less. Fifteen or less. You get. You have uh, unpaid sick leave. You do not have to pay, but you have to give them the days off without putting their job in jeopardy. Uh, Fifteen or more. Uh, you have to uh, pay uh, the sick leave up to five days a year, but it's earned. I mean, you just don't get it. You have to accumulate the hours uh, to be able to earn that sick leave. And I think the vast majority of employers have ways to deal with their employees because they want to keep them engaged and employed. They want to make sure that they have opportunities to stay home when they're sick. They want to make sure they have opportunities to, to uh, take care of, uh, of uh, their family. This is a very popular uh, issue in the state of Maryland. And you can see where the governor's trying to have his own earned sick leave bill but he wants to pay for it with $100 million worth of tax credits. Now, we can't even afford our health insurance programs now. You know, that can't be a priority for us of taking $100 million out of the general fund coffers uh, to pay employers to provide uh, sick leave. So, um, appreciate the question. I, and I just want to clarify for your listeners, too, um, with all due respect, to the Baltimore City City Council did pass um, and the a minimum mayor wage increase, it. but the mayor vetoed it because she said she thought it should be done statewide. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the question is. No, it's a minimum wage. It was a minimum oh. wage question. Okay. So, and I, so let me just move ahead. I was going to say okay. something else, but I think it's not as important. Next, sir. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, Grassroots Think Tank in Baltimore City. Um, you know, over the past several years, um, the, the way in which the criminal justice system um, has undermined the humanity of people of African descent, people of color more broadly, um, and our quality of life is something that has gained, you know, mainstream notoriety and understanding. Um, the legislature has made some moves in acknowledgement of this. And you look at, um, you know, the given returning citizens the right to vote upon release, the Justice Reinvestment Act, um, the recent uh, move to ban the box on college applications, and we're we hope you're able to get the votes to override the governor's veto on that. Right. Two-part question. Um, what we're seeing, because of the historic levels of violence that we see in Baltimore City, um, there's kind of an impulse to return back to some of the kinds of policies that essentially put Baltimore in the position that caused the uprising in 2015, um, particularly the way in which people understand dealing with crime as a matter of law enforcement um, instead of investing in community-based anti-violence programs, um, programs like Safe Streets, um, which takes people who were formerly involved in criminal activity um, and invest in their ability to negotiate um, you know, peace agreements between folks that are engaged in conflicts. Um, so first part of my question is, um, what can we expect from you all in terms of making sure um, that the approach to dealing with violence is not 
solely based on increased penalties for incarceration of folks engaged in violence, um, but taking an approach um, that the data shows is more effective and investing in communities' ability to address some of those concerns. Second part of my question is criminal justice, and we just had a comment about marijuana legalization. A lot of times, um, the conversation about the impact that drug laws have had um, on peoples of color stop at the stopping the, the laws that allow for law enforcement to do the overreach that causes the mass incarceration. Not enough conversation about repairing the harm that has been done and that all the studies show that it's been done as a result of the war on drugs. What will you do, or will you, if, if a bill is put in front of you, um, and we've heard some rumblings about a potential bill that will put marijuana legalization on referendum, um, what would, if a bill is put in front of you that is a referendum on marijuana legalization, will it be important to you to make sure that tax revenues go to investing in repairing the harm that has been done as a result of the war on drugs, as opposed to just legalizing it and just stopping the practice of, of mass incarceration? First of all, I don't, need, <clears throat> I don't know of any bill to uh, put marijuana on referendum. It's something the legislature can deal with. It does need to be put on referendum. And two, uh, You've got to recognize, as we do, that there is a real problem in Baltimore City, and it exists right now. Um, you know, I, I brought justice reinvestment to the state of Maryland. We worked at it, and we, uh, but at the same time, there are 500 less uh, police officers in the Baltimore City Police Force than there were several years ago. And what's most concerning to me, I get a report from the chief judge of the, of the state of Maryland, Judge Barbera, that says, guess what? We don't need any new judges in Baltimore City. Judge, why not? Because the crime is down 50% in Baltimore City. Arrests are down 50% from four years ago. Uh, there's a real problem. There's a dysfunction in the, legal, in the law enforcement system in Baltimore City. I don't know if it's blue flu. I don't know if it's because of the relationship of the, the state's attorney uh, with the police department. Uh, but something has to be done. Um, public safety needs to be addressed in terms of the persons in Baltimore City and their, and their, and their property. And the legislature is going to have to deal with it and deal with it uh, this session at the same time move forward on safe streets and, and other opportunities. But uh, the problem right now is public safety and it has to be addressed and addressed immediately. You want to say that, Mr. Speaker? Look, I, I think everybody's concerned about what takes place in Baltimore City right now uh, with the issue of violent crime. It was uh, obviously a year in Baltimore City where there were more deaths than anyone expected. They're going sky high. Uh, we're working with Mayor Pugh and the Baltimore City delegation to come up with an overall game plan, hopefully, for to reduce violent crime and to uh, try to provide uh, opportunities in the workplace uh, for particularly young African-Americans uh, to go out, earn a living, come back, and feel secure in knowing that they can take care of their family, pay for college education, things of that nature. Uh, we started the Bernie program, which puts about $20 million into revitalizing communities We've, we've dealt with the trying to uh, restructure communities in Baltimore City, um, make it a more friendly place. We do have to have some kind of uh, trade organization and trade schools with the building trades and so forth to treat, teach uh, 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 young men and women trades that they can uh, go out into the workforce with. And you need a viable transportation system up there. So this is multifaceted. If you can't get back and forth to places like Sparrows Point and Trade Point, uh, where they can depend on you that you're going to be there in a timely manner if you get a job down there, a nice high-paying job, or back down to the BWI airport or to Fort Meade where there's jobs available. Uh, they should, uh, our transportation system has to accommodate uh, those, uh, those uh, individuals who want to, want to go to the workplace. As you know, uh, the governor took a uh, billion dollars out of the uh, mass transit budget that would have moved people back and forth from Baltimore down to Baltimore County. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I mean, Barbara Mikulski worked very hard to get that billion dollars. We don't have it now. So we, you know, our, our transportation system, I understand from the senators and delegates in Baltimore, just is not working. So to follow up on David Love's question here, I mean, I think that I mean, there is a real disagreement, I think, with a lot of people over how you spend money and what public safety means. Right. That what you alluded to a moment ago, uh, uh, President Miller, is that is there a blue flu? Well, I think it's very clear that police officers are standing down since the, the cases around Freddie Gray's death took place. 
that's part only part of the problem, though. Right. The other part of the problem is that is is is, is I think what Dave Onlo was talking about, which was is, is that where do we invest the money? Do you invest the money only in more police, or do you invest the money in things like safe streets that actually shows has proven you can cut down murders in a community, and then you figure out how to invest money back in inner city communities. So, uh, as I said to the governor, and I don't think he completely agreed with me, but uh, maybe you won't either, but that the desolation and isolation and hopelessness of poverty in black communities right. is worse now than it was in 1968, when I was in the Poor People's Campaign living in Resurrection City. Because families have been destroyed, communities have been disrupted. So what do we do as a state to intervene there in ways that aren't just locking people up? Yeah, I, I don't think just locking people up is the answer to anything. I mean, uh, not I think some people don't need to be locked up. Right. That's not what I'm saying. Well, look, I, I, I think that that uh, you know the living conditions in many of these areas uh, and the open drug markets uh, provide opportunities to earn a lot of money quickly in in uh, you know in in the drug industry. So you have to entice people into a marketplace where they're going to get a, a, uh, a decent uh, living and a decent salary and a career, possibly. I mean, if you go down to Trade Point, there's numerous jobs available with FedEx now. But you've got to get there in a timely manner. And if you don't have a transportation system that works, it's not going to help those people who are trying to get into the workplace and do that. And if you can't get down to... Fort Meade, which is now the largest employer in the state of Maryland, has numerous jobs available. And if you can't get down there on a timely manner and be dependable with a transportation system that is dysfunctional, that's not going to help either Fort Meade or the, the individuals in Baltimore City that need those type of jobs. I mean, it's very tough to live in Baltimore City and own an automobile. I mean, if you're trying to pay for housing and, and everything else, you know, having an automobile, the insurance is more expensive and so forth. And, uh, you know, so most people use, utilize mass transit there. The school system utilizes it. You know, yeah, last year we had a, this, uh, we, we, the speaker and I met in Baltimore City several times with the mayor, chairman yeah. council. We came up with this whole litany of things to do, and we did them. The money came from the state. Opened the library systems, opened the rec systems, money going to community associations, demolition of uh, abandoned buildings. I mean, we care about Baltimore City, honestly and truly. But Senator Ferguson, who's a... Uh, uh, senator from Baltimore City, a wonderful, wonderful state senator. He went on a ride-along uh, last week with a, a police officer in Baltimore City, and it was young, uh, uh, just a, a high morale, but he, he got seven calls while he's on the ride-along, and he said, I just don't have time to do the, all seven of these calls. I don't have time to deal with all these things. We are undermanned. There's not police on the blocks. There's none of the police uh, in the city, and uh, that needs to be addressed as well as the social issues. Yeah, if I could just clarify my point, I think it's really important that we understand that on the issue of safety, that there are community-based anti-violence programs that are more effective and more cost-effective um, than police. And I just, I just, I get concerned when we talk about public safety specifically. So I understand all the other social issues. I just get concerned that when we talk about public safety specifically, that we focus so much on more law enforcement that's so that's so costly and ineffective, no. as opposed to other alternatives that really incorporate the community and invest in the community's ability to address those issues in ways that law enforcement just traditionally hasn't been able to. Thank you. I agree. So let me go right back to the audience. So we only have like less than a half an hour to give people a chance to really jump in here. Ma'am, go ahead. Um, my name is Indra Lunder. I go to school at Bard High School Early College in Baltimore, and I'm also here with the intersection. Um, my question is another one about school funding. Um, given that Maryland schools are underfunded by $2.9 billion annually, according to Strong Schools Maryland. What legislative measures can be taken on a state level to support equitable funding for schools in Maryland? And I know this question is a little repetitive, but this issue is one that affects the future of students in all counties of Maryland. And um, statistics and data have shown that the achievement level of students in Maryland have gone down over the years. So we just want to make sure that something is being done about this. Thank you so much. It's good to have high school students in the audience again. Gentlemen? Well, I disagree. We're un un underfunding schools by two point some billion dollars. So we, we are pouring uh, 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money into education uh, every year. And, uh, you know, we're working very hard at it. And, you know, you, you have a peer group. Our peer group is the United States of America. It states we were one of the top-funded states in the union in terms of funding education. It's a priority for me. I mean, the oldest of 10 children. We all went to public schools. All went to land-grant colleges. It is the way you move up in society. We need to do the very best, but at the same time, we are not underfunding uh, public schools by that amount or any, anything near that amount. So then, what's, then Speaker, uh, Speaker Bush, what's the problem when you have, when this, the teacher-student ratio has jumped? What's that? Teacher-student ratio. The ratio has jumped when you've got situations in the schools where, uh, where there's one psychologist for every 1,000 students, Baltimore City, there's one engineer for every six schools. I mean, something's wrong. Something's not working. So maybe you're saying that you said, Mr. President, that there's you know, plenty of money that's been put in. Some of the studies saying that not enough money's put in. Where does that money come from? Who knows? But so where, where does this discussion begin? Look, where do you take this? You know, we're a state that you know, values putting the money into every, every child. The state right now puts $900 million in the state of Baltimore, or city of Baltimore. The city of Baltimore puts $200 million in. So we're putting in almost three times uh, more Four times. than the city of Baltimore puts into its school system. But that's, that's the way, you know, we distribute money for education so everybody has a, a, uh, a greater share of that wealth. Uh, the problem with Baltimore City is they're not a wealthy-based city, and their piggyback tax doesn't bring back that much, much money. I mean, Montgomery County uh, has a high median income, so they're putting money into the Baltimore system, but they get to get it back through the piggyback tax. Uh, I think one of the things that we looked at, and we worked with uh, former Mayor Rawlings and uh, the city school system was, you know, we, we passed a billion dollars for 21st century schools that are now opening up 28 new schools in Baltimore City that are basically paid for above the IEC recommendations that are being built by the stadium authority to make it a safer, more welcoming place uh, to the city of Baltimore. Now look, Baltimore has numerous problems. Well, a lot of it is infrastructure with the heating, the water, the plumbing, all those type of things. And, uh, you know, it, it's up to us every year to look at innovative ways to try to improve upon that. We understand that uh, there's no more resources needed in Baltimore City, but what's the best way to, to go about doing that? Back to the audience. Thank you so much for the question. Good morning. My name is Kristen Harvest, and I'm the political director for the Maryland League of Conservation Voters. I wanted to thank both of you for your leadership in the last sessions on environmental policies, which earned both of you 100% uh, scores from the Maryland League of Conservation Voters. In that included, uh, this in the last two years, both the initial passage of the 25% by 2020 renewable portfolio standard increase and then the gubernatorial override this year. We're coming back again this year with the next step in, that, in the goal for driving, improving renewable energy in Maryland with a goal for 50% by the year 2030, including in, incorporating, uh, improving the infrastructure regulatory infrastructure and uh, workforce development and job training infrastructure for green jobs in Maryland, as well as taking the first step towards cleaning up the RPS through pulling out waste incineration incentives, phasing out waste incentive, incentives. Renewable energy is an incredibly popular uh, policy in Maryland. We know that from numerous polls and by the fact that our coalition has over 600 members from, of organizations and businesses across the state. How do you see this session uh, advancing the, the clean energy economy and the clean energy businesses in Maryland? Thank and you. And renewable and clean are not necessarily always the same thing. No, yes, no, <laughs> this, is, this is true. We are taking, there are, there are, uh, there are, there are, uh, parts of the RPS that are not considered clean but are renewable, we are taking the first step towards cleaning up the RPS through removing through phasing out waste incineration um, only. Look, uh, you know, we pride ourselves on being very progressive in renewable energy. Uh, that uh, legislation comes from the, in front of the Economic Matters Committee as well as, I'm sure, finance and uh, 
the Senate, and uh, we've moved pretty aggressively on that. We have that debate every year about whether the marketplace is ready for uh, more renewable energy. Obviously, we want to we want to keep increasing as much renewable energy as we could possibly have in the state of Maryland. That's solar energy. Uh, that's wind energy. We think that they are good things that take uh, uh, the emphasis off of fossil fuels uh, here in the state of Maryland. So we're we're working to improve the uh, amount of renewable energy that we. Uh, require uh, distributors of uh, electricity to, uh, to uh, purchase here in the state of Maryland, yes. You know, uh, somebody has to speak for the taxpayers, you know, honestly and truly. Uh, uh, the speaker and I go all around the state, but when we go to the Eastern Shore, we go to, to uh, Southern Maryland, we go to Western Maryland, people complain about the money's being spent in Baltimore City. Uh, people complain about the renewable energy, the cost to the taxpayers. Uh, we're moving as quickly and as farther ahead as we can possibly can, but you understand also that we are in one of the highest tax states in the union. Do you understand that? The highest tax states in the union, right up there with uh, uh, New York and Massachusetts. And in fact, to the point where we're, we're trying to find a way to, to reach a proper balance uh, because the people are saying enough is enough is enough is enough. Um, Gov Governor Hogan had nothing in his resume uh, in terms of serving in prior uh, office at all other than say, Martin O'Malley raised 40 fees and taxes. That's all he did. I'm gonna, not going to raise any fees. I'm not going to raise any taxes. And guess what? He was elected. And he's going to continue to campaign on that. Uh, and he's not going to, if he's reelected, again, no more new fees, no new taxes. Taxes are the dues you pay to belong to society. They've got to be reasonable. They've got to be fair. They've got to be equitable. And there's got to be the right balance. And we work toward that every single day here in Annapolis. If so, I may, if I may, the same polls that said that this was that this is a very popular issue also said that people don't mind paying more. You know, and if we did everything that was popular, um, this would be the worst state in the union. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Uh, thank you, Mr. Steiner. My name is Doug Colbert. I'm a law professor at Maryland Law School. Uh, good morning, Mr. President, Mr. Speaker. Um, I want to talk about uh, the bail bondsmen and the bail bond industry. We've been reading a lot of very sad stories about uh, legislators, uh, well, about bail bondsmen paying bribes to legislators, one of whom who's already been indicted and perhaps others may follow. Right. Um, certainly when uh, we hear of those stories, it, it casts serious doubt on the integrity of the legislative process. Uh, I'm wondering whether uh, you would consider replacing uh, the bail bonds industry uh, with funding with a, for pretrial services agencies in every county in, in Maryland. Right now, about half of the 22 counties are funded with pretrial agencies, and they lend their expertise in making recommendations to judges, as well as helping people get jobs, helping people return to school. And so my question is, if such a a bill, if such an opportunity came before you, in which you would be in, would you be in favor of providing the resources for pretrial agencies throughout the state and moving away from uh, the profitable bail bond industry? Well, again, uh, the bail bond industry was gutted by the uh, legislation we passed last year. And, um, you know, there are consequences, some good, some bad. The good part is, is that People with minor offenses are getting uh, released with no bond whatsoever. The bad news is that people on the marginal level are now being held without bond. The, the Constitution guarantees everyone a right to bond, and bond is, cannot be used for punishment or, or any of that under the Constitution. But people who deserve to be released are not being released at the present time in the state of Maryland. There's got to be some, some way to, to move forward. Now, what you're talking about is working well in Montgomery County. It's working well in, in St. Mary's County. And we're gradually moving toward that direction, and we will. But in terms of abolishing the bail bond business anytime soon, uh, I don't see that happen. There needs to be somebody to make sure these people come to trial. There needs to be somebody that goes out and says, hey, you've got a court case. You need to be there. Right now, because of the legislation we passed last year, more and more people are not showing up for court. Warrants are being issued. And when the police go to get them, guess what? They got a gun, they're going to shoot them. You know, I don't want to go back. 
So there, there are just consequences. And decisions also need to be, have input from people actually in the court system, the district court judges, the state's attorneys, the public defenders, et cetera, rather than the people up here who have no experience in the district court uh, whatsoever. Mr. President, I would never disagree with you in public, but I would merely say that. <laughs> Please do so. My law professors disagree with me constantly. <laughs> well, uh, the, the leg there was no legislation passed last year. What the bail bondsman tried to do was to undo. It was a regulation that was passed. It, it, it did not get undone. Right. So the judiciary unanimously made changes to make sure that people were not going to stay in jail because they didn't have the bail money. Right. The bondsman through their acts of bribery were trying to influence legislators to vote for their bill, which fortunately, Speaker Bush uh, made sure that was not going to happen. So right. I guess what I'm asking is, since somebody has come into the House of the Legislature with bribes, wouldn't that be reason to say you really can't be doing business like you have been doing? And we need to find another way in the name of pretrial services agencies. You know, this is this one state senator who's, who's going to go to trial in three months, and that's an issue. Um, but um, you know, in, in terms of hitting everybody with a broad brush, that's unfortunate. I mean, it really is unfortunate. Uh, I don't know if any bribes been paid to anybody, and uh, that person's going to go to trial in three months. We're going to try to deal with that uh, quickly through the uh, ethics committee. But one of the issues that we have, you as a professor can understand this. This case is being tried in the newspapers right now. How is that person going to get a fair trial in Baltimore City with the comments of the, with the, comments of the governor, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the prosecutors publishing uh, evidence that they hope to introduce, which they have no document of in terms of a, uh, of a, uh, a recording, no written document? And it's published in the newspaper. All that can do is prejudge or, or uh, uh, affect adversely the jury pool. Well, as Even you, know, you would as understand you know, that as a law professor. Uh, so let me, let me, we just would have to get it. I'm sorry. So, but it is a federal jury, and so the right. people sitting there will represent Maryland, not just the city of Baltimore. Right. Thank you very much. Trial will be held in Baltimore City. Did you have anything to say since you made the last stand I, last I, session? I'm, I'm just glad I didn't go to law school. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. Yeah. <laughs> That makes, so let me just ask, before we go back here, very quickly, in the less than 10 minutes we have left, and I'll come right out here, um, we talked about taxes earlier and uh, what we're going to face in the state of Maryland. I know discussing taxes is an anathema during an election year for most people running for office. Right. <laughs> Having said that, are we at a point where we have to seriously look at our tax structure? I remember it was, what, seven years ago when we had this massive debate here um, in the state, but here at Indianapolis Summit, um, over broadening the sales tax to take it out of the industrial age and put it into the new age of business. Um, most of that was defeated. Um, not all of it, most of it was defeated. Right. So do we need to think, not just for sales taxes, but in general, is it time to put together uh, a serious study about how we restructure taxation in the state of Maryland, giving the federal issues, but also giving all the issues we face in the state of Maryland? The time? Look, I, th I think we've gone over taxes numerous years here. And I'll go back to what the President's Senate said uh, uh, earlier. When Spiro Agnew was the governor, we went from a property tax based state where the vast majority of revenue came from property tax, people were screaming, to where we went to a piggyback tax where our state uh, uh, income tax was piggybacked by. Uh, local subdivisions and the wealthier subdivisions would get more money back. We had to change the formula how we give out money back through the school system. So we went through a major tax overhaul uh, back then. Matter of fact, I think that uh, Harry Hughes was uh, the leader in the Senate at that point on that and worked with uh, uh, Governor Agnew. So we have a low property tax considerably for the wealth of the state of Maryland and a high income tax because of the piggyback tax the counties can uh, pay for. And then, uh, you know, we have a very narrow sales tax base. We don't tax services. We tax, you know, basically uh, uh, goods that can be purchased. So, uh, you, you know, we, we are in the middle of the pack there. We're in the middle of the pack with corporate taxes. I think our tax structure has been studied uh, uh, quite a bit. And the question is, you know, we've tried to keep up 
with our education system, which is the largest part of our general fund budget, as well as healthcare, and you were a donor state to the federal government, if you will, with healthcare, uh, we have to pay out 50% uh, of our, our general fund dollars for everybody who qualifies for Medicaid. And uh, so uh, we're paying out quite a bit of money for Medicaid recipients, uh, many senior citizens in there, many developmentally disabled people. So we have to do that. So the question is how the revenues match up, obviously, with uh, the expenditures. And, and uh, you know, I don't, I, quite candidly, I don't know where else to go except in new industries if you do have recreational marijuana that you raise money or you do get it through expansion of gaming. But I don't know where else you're going to, you're going to get it and justify it through the Maryland taxpayer. Um, President Miller? Nothing's going to pass. It wouldn't pass. Uh, you know, you got to have a, a will to make things happen. Uh, with the, with the, currently with our governor um, and his political philosophies, uh, you know, just any type of new taxation. I mean, where, where, where it would go would be you'd apply sales tax to services. And um, it's just not politically popular and, and um, it's not going to happen. Good morning, President Miller, Speaker Bush. Thank you for your, for your time and your leadership. My name is Mike Benko. I run a group called Startup Maryland. Um, we've claimed the number two position nationally for in supporting entrepreneurship and innovation around the state. We're gunning for number one. Um, whether it's cybersecurity, the rebirth of manufacturing, or sustainability, innovation is what Maryland breeds. With the topic of um, medicinal cannabis being brought up several times, I'd like to offer some support as opposed to a question or a challenge this morning. Um, there's an organization launching today in Maryland called the Cannabis Innovation Alliance for Opportunity, CHOW. And it's focusing on the areas where Maryland's opportunity in cannabis could be learned and experienced around the country and around the world. Medicinal is that area. As we've taken a look at a, for a year long on the other states that have gone to legalization, there's no other state that can lay claim to outcomes based on medicinal applications of cannabis like Maryland. Look at the University System of Maryland, Johns Hopkins, federal resources that are here like NIH and the Cancer Institutes. We offer some support to the legislation where there's opportunities in rural or urban to apply uh, outcomes for patient care on a national level for meaningful uh, reimbursement or patient care at a basic form. We're almost we, running out of time, but if you have, do you have a question? No, the, the question would be if there were um, some testimony or, or opportunities to bring some legislation for us that would assist Maryland becoming the, the location for best practices in medicinal cannabis applications. Um, what type of support could we, could we expect? We'd be happy to consider it immediately. Just contact our office today, tomorrow, what have you, and we'll see if we can bring them before the committees. All right, one final quick question. Mr. Steiner, thank you very much. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, thank Harry, you. Harry, how are you this morning? Today. Fine, sir, how are you this morning? Um, Larry Richardson, Maryland Chamber of Commerce. Just briefly wanted to just touch base with you. There's a belief by many of our business owners, especially the small businesses, that the legislature essentially has continued to, to layer the business community and ask them to carry the load for various layering mandates and restrictions. Can you assure business owners today, especially the small businessman, small businesswoman that's struggling to survive and struggling to keep their employees, that this legislature will work with them to help create and grow jobs and not put them in a position where they have to look to cut hours, cut jobs, or close their doors because of, of over, overburdensome mandates and restrictions. You know, one of our, our problems, quite frankly, uh, is the federal government. Um, you know, what, what they, they said they were going to uh, repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, they call it. What they did, they repealed a section but didn't replace it. It means that insurance premiums have gone up and are going to go up again and that we're in danger of losing uh, uh, the suppliers of insurance here in the state of Maryland. They're, they can't afford to stay here. Uh, as a small businessman, I provide all the insurance coverage to all my employees. Uh, uh, you know, this past year, I've had to decide on profit sharing, Christmas bonuses, and health care. We wound up paying all three, but it's very expensive. And it's a cost that's going to continue to rise for small business people. And, uh, We've got to solve, we're going to, we're going to work together to try to solve the health care crisis here in Maryland, as well as the tax issue. But we're faced with these daunting tax issues to deal with in this next 90 days. It's never easy as a small business owner. No, no. It's yeah. never easy. But we've never had more than five or six employees, but we've always paid health care. People always had sick leave. 
just take care of people who work for you. Right. That's okay. part of your job as a business owner, I think, anyway. So um, I want to thank the two of you for coming here. This is the 15th Annual Annapolis Summit. <laughs> President Mike Miller. Thank you. House Speaker Michael Bush. And uh, I want to thank, once again, all of our uh, partners here. Of course, the Maryland Daily Record. They've been the phenomenal partners. It's just incredible to work with this team of people, Suzanne Fisher-Hutner and, and, uh, and all the others. Uh, the Maryland State Bar Association, Alexander and Cleaver, Chimes, the Maryland State Education Association, and the really professional work of VPC Inc. So thank you all for coming out today. Good to have you here. And we'll be up on the air just in a couple hours. Gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belvidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at steinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.